Quite a text of scripture right out of the gates, huh? Anybody have that cross-stitched in their living room? Or maybe on some coffee mugs in the kitchen? Probably not. My guess is not. Today we're beginning a five-week series on the book of Ezekiel, and it is titled, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. We're actually going to reverse that order and spend this week talking about the ugliness of sin. Next week, we'll talk about the bad news of God's righteous and necessary, appropriate judgment of our sin. And the last three weeks will be on the good news that is woven throughout the book of Ezekiel. So a more accurate series title would have been the ugly, the bad, and the good, good, good. But it just doesn't quite ring. We don't have that saying in our culture as much, and so it did not get voted in for the title. By way of public confession, before last fall, I hadn't really read Ezekiel in like a few sittings. I had read it as part of like a Bible reading plan where you read a couple of chapters here and there, and by reading it that way, it was very disjointed to my understanding. Um, You'd read two chapters of Ezekiel one morning and be like, man, that's discouraging. And then the next morning you'd open up Ezekiel and be like, man, that's discouraging. And pretty soon you couldn't, I couldn't anyway, see like what is, what is actually going on. And it wasn't until last fall when I sat down to actually read the whole book in just a couple of settings uh, that I started to actually see the beauty of the book of Ezekiel. And if you're at all familiar with Ezekiel, you might be surprised to hear me say the beauty of Ezekiel. But it's a beautiful book. It's a brutal book. It's a, it's a brutally honest book. I mean, this is where God gets the most graphic in all of Scripture about our sin. Nowhere, this is more graphic than the Song of Solomon. This book is brutally honest, but it is also beautiful, beautifully hopeful. Uh, and we're going to lay this out, hopefully, over these next five weeks. And my hope is that as we read through it, I would just challenge you to read it for yourself over these coming weeks and read it in large sections. Uh, I heard N.T. Wright say, use an illustration of a window, and he said, when you read a verse of scripture, like if you all look back there at that window into the prayer room, there's nobody back there, so you're not putting them on the spot. If you look at that window, if we were to use that as the illustration, we look through that window, let's just say that that window was actually looking outside And outside this building was actually like the Rocky Mountains, not just Northeast Denver. It'd be beautiful, right? We could see mountains out there. We might see some trees, might see some wildlife of some kind. If we stood here and looked out that window, we could see all that stuff. But if we walked up to the window and put our nose on it, then as we're looking, we can see a much bigger picture of the nature that's outside that window, right? And what N.T. Wright was saying is that's what it's like to read large sections of Scripture at a time. You get a much bigger picture of what's going on and a much more accurate view of what's being said than if you just step back and read a couple of chapters. Does that make sense? So I would encourage you to do that over these five weeks. Sit down and just read 10 chapters out of Ezekiel in one sitting. And underline, take a pen or a highlighter and underline the things that stand out to you as promises of God, because there are many promises of God in here, and they're yours. The promises that are in Ezekiel are your inheritance, the New Testament says. They are all yes for you in Christ. And so this is the best thing you could do with your time. (laughs) It's, It's better than sitting down and looking at your savings account, if it's anything like mine. 
Like, this is good. This is a good thing to do. So do that. Do that over these coming weeks. And then as you come in and you hear people up here speaking about Ezekiel, you'll just be, you'll have a better picture of, of what's being talked about. That had a radical impact on my life. Um, God used just the reading of Ezekiel, and then from that I read all of the prophets that way. And then I just decided to continue to just go back to the beginning and read Scripture that way. And so now I'm in Samuel, and I'm excited to get into Samuel because I just came through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where I would always get bogged down in the Bible reading plans. Um, And I'm excited to see some things happen. So I would encourage you to do it. Ezekiel had a profound impact on my life. Um, I'm going to just do something here really quick. Okay. So today, today we're going to talk about sin. That's what we're going to talk about. Hope you're, hope you're excited to hear that. I told the group, I told our uh, worship team this morning as we were gathering for our pre-service meeting, I said, I'm going to name names, man. I'm not really. I'm just going to name one name, Josh Larson. That's me. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us today, I was supposed to say that at the beginning. Um, Josh Larson is a sinner, and it's important for you to know that. I promise you there's nothing that you're hiding in your life. There's nothing that you've done. There's nothing that you hope people don't ever find out about that I would look at and not say, yeah, I've done worse. That's me. That's who your pastor is. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And there's nothing that you've gotten yourself into that I haven't gotten myself into. And before I stand up here and talk about sin, I think it's important that you should know that. Because it's easy for pastors as they talk about sin to come across as though they had never done it. In fact, I come from a long generation or long history of pastors, many generations of pastors. And this is not a slam on the people that went before me, my grandfather or great-grandfather or anybody. It's just true for pastors that sometimes pastors feel pressure to sort of be a good example when they're talking about sin. And in being a good example maybe not share so much about their own sin. (laughs) Because you want to be able to show people hope, right? You want to be encouraging. And so if you do the right things, I promise they work. Just look at my life. And that's really tempting. It's tempting, but it's also dangerous because it can leave everybody feeling like, well, if that guy doesn't struggle, then what's wrong with me? So I promise you, as we look at sin, I am not coming to you from, I I, I wish I was just out there. I'm not coming to you from the stage as somebody up on a stage with a title. I'm coming to you as a sinner, as a fellow sinner. And so together, I'm going to invite us to look at what God has to say about our sin. And it's not great. (laughs) Uh, I intentionally, it was hard for me because a book like Ezekiel, I mean, there's a lot of chapters in Ezekiel. And so it's hard to just boil this down to five weeks. Uh, and it's hard to find a text. So like if you're preaching, the, the team, the Sunday service team will ask you what your text is. It was hard for me to nail down a text, but I think chapter 22 is a good place to do it. This is a good summation of God's argument against his people. And what's happening is, is in Ezekiel is this. From the very beginning of time, back with Adam and Eve, God has consistently set before his people a choice. You can live the way I've created you to live and enjoy life with me and happiness and joy and contentment, 
or you can choose death, life away from me in outer darkness and fear and evil. You can choose that. But I would encourage you to choose life. God says this over and over to his people. And Adam and Eve chose death. Cain, God came to Cain after Adam and Eve. Cain chose death. God comes to Noah. Noah eventually chooses death. God comes to Abraham and Lot. Lot chooses death. God comes to his people all the way like in Egypt. He delivers them from Egypt. And right after he delivers them from slavery in Egypt, he says, I'm setting before you life and death. Choose life so that you can live. And the people say, we'll choose life. And in the next chapter, they're choosing death. So you get through Deuteronomy and you get into Joshua and into Judges. And by the time you get to Judges, Joshua dies and the next generation, it says, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Twice in the book of Judges, horrible things are happening in Judges. Within the people of God, within God's covenant family, rape, murder, incest, it's all happening. And twice in the book, it says, and the, there was no king in Israel in these days, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. God had warned them earlier not to do what's right in your own eyes. He actually says it in Deuteronomy. He says, now, listen, you're, you're going to be tempted to do what's right in your own eyes. But you need to look to me and live. Don't do what's right in your own eyes. And within a couple of generations, everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. From Exodus to Ezekiel is almost a thousand years. So for a thousand years now, people have been doing what is right in their own eyes and running headlong further and further from God. And so now they're heading into exile. Ezekiel is written to a people in exile. They've been taken over by Babylon. Their temple's been destroyed. And Ezekiel now is God's mouthpiece to his people in exile. And one of the things that God is going to say to them is, you have chosen this. You have chosen this. This is my judgment on you, but you've chosen it. So in this first section of Ezekiel, God is basically taking his bride to divorce court. That's often what it sounds like and feels like, like these are legal proceedings. And by the time we get to chapter 22, he's bringing in everybody as witnesses, including the surrounding nations. They're all coming in to witness the way God's people have treated him and the way now he is responding to them. And his, his bet, if it's a bet, it's not a bet, but what he's saying is that they will say is, you, O oh God, are righteous in all your ways. You're righteous. He's going to win his day in court. But this is what's going on. God is saying to his people, I've warned you and I've warned you and I've pleaded with you and I've pleaded with you and you would not listen and you have chosen death. So the reason I chose 22 is because I feel like in chapter 22, God says this is not just a couple of people. This is everybody. And for sake of time, I'm not going to reread everything that was read, but it goes from the priests in verse, actually in verse 25, it goes from the prophets, they have sinned, to the priests, they have sinned, to the princes, they have sinned, to the people, they have sinned. That's everybody. The people who are the prophets, the mouthpiece of God have sinned. The priests, the people who are supposed to mediate between God and his people have sinned and are corrupt. 
the princes, which here is not only talking about political power, though it is that, it's also just talking about the wealthy and powerful in the land have sinned and have become corrupted. And the people themselves have sinned and become corrupted. That's what God is saying in chapter 22. He is actually saying about sin, it is rampant, it is evil, and it is everywhere. It is everywhere. And so we together hear this as a congregation and have nothing else to say, but we are guilty. We're guilty. So I just want to look at a few things about sin. First, and maybe most obviously, sin is illegal. In the courtroom of God and in the eyes of God, sin is illegal. It is a breaking of a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? It's more than just a promise, though it is that. It's a contractual promise. It's a promise that I make and we have a contract. Now, marriage is supposed to be a covenant, but there's not really a contract in marriage other than we do exchange vows in a wedding ceremony, right? That's a covenant. That's a picture of a covenant. It is a mutual agreement to love and cherish one another all the way till death parts us. So marriage is a covenant, but so is a mortgage. A mortgage is a covenant. It's a contract between a home buyer and a bank. The bank promises to give the person money to buy a house. The person promises to pay the bank back and signs an agreement that says, I will pay this money back till death do I part. <laughs> it's going to take me the rest of my life, but I will pay this money back. What happens if they break, if the home buyer breaks the contract? What happens? They lose the house. And in that sense, wouldn't you say, that a mortgage is even better than a marriage, just in terms of covenant, because it's got teeth. I think there would be fewer divorces if in the wedding vows it was, I, I promise all of these things, and if I break my promise, you can keep my ring finger. <laughs> if the wedding vows had some teeth to them, it might matter a little bit more, right, than the way we see it mattering today. But that's what a covenant is. Actually, a biblical covenant has teeth to it. It has teeth. It's life and death. In fact, when God is, when God is laying those choices out, he's making a covenant with his people. If you will choose this and walk in this way, I will bless you. If you choose this and walk in this way, you will die. That's a covenant. That's a covenant. And it's got teeth. And God's people have broken here the covenant. They have broken the contract with God. In just about every legal system in the world and throughout history, breaking a contract or a covenant is illegal. The problem is lawyers. If you're rich, and too often if you're white, you can hire a lawyer and find loopholes to a contract. And your lawyer will go before the judge and say, Josh, Josh did not know what he was signing when he signed this contract, Your Honor, and therefore, it can't possibly be legally binding. And so the judge will say, you know what, that's a good point. Josh, you didn't know what you were signing, and therefore, you're out of the contract, and I can legally break the contract. Then, the next person that I make a contract with is going to say, okay, this is Josh. So we're going to add a clause that even if Josh doesn't know what he's signing, he cannot break this contract. 
So I enter into that contract. And then years later, I get another attorney and say, I need to break this contract. And the attorney's like, great, we got loopholes. And that goes all the way through my life. I can just continue to break contracts. That's the way, unfortunately, a lot of contracts end, is just somebody decides they want to break it, they hire the right attorney, and they can break it. In this case, God is prosecuting his people. And there are no loopholes. Because God is perfectly just. And he's not only the prosecutor, he is also the judge. If you are in court and the prosecutor is trying your case, and then all of a sudden the prosecutor puts on a robe and goes and sits behind the bench, you would say, I object, your honor. That's a conflict of interest. But here God is both. He is prosecuting his people and he is the judge over his people. Why does he get to be both? Because he is only, he's the only perfect person in the universe. He's the only one fit to prosecute and not get it wrong. He's never gotten a verdict wrong. And he's the only person fit to judge. And so in Ezekiel, we, as the people of God, have no loopholes. We are not getting out of this contract. We're not going to break it. We have broken it. And God's, God cannot if he's a perfect judge, let us off the hook, right? Just in the same way, if you were in court and you saw a judge say, you know what, jury, I know that you said the guy's guilty, but I got to go with my gut on this one. I'm going to let him off. You'd be like, that's, that's a bad judge. That's a bad judge. God is not here to let us off the hook. God is here for justice and justice will be served. We have broken the contract. God knows and sees everything. He alone has an absolutely perfect perspective and is himself absolutely perfect. He is the only one in all of history, including Abraham Lincoln, who has told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He's the only one. Even if somebody has promised and touched a Bible, God is still the only one who has ever told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's who God is. That's who we are in court against. And in this setting, we are against him. We want nothing to do with him. He is the only one, because of that, who can see things perfectly. And furthermore, God is love. Not just loving, he is love itself. So you can be sure that even when he's prosecuting you and me, you will be painted in the best possible light. He's not out to necessarily wrongfully assassinate, not necessarily, he's not out to wrongfully assassinate your character. You don't have to worry about that. You will be painted in the best possible light. Unfortunately, even in the best possible light, our sin is ugly. And that's what Ezekiel goes to great pains to disclose over and over and over again, in very graphic detail, Ezekiel says, you have sinned and you have broken your covenant with God. And even in the best, most compassionate light, the ugliness of our sin, it's hideous, it's shameful, it's embarrassing. And we know in the courtroom better than anybody there that we are guilty. We know it. So yes, our sin is a breach of contract. It's illegal. We get that. But how helpful is that as a point? Have you ever tried to help a friend or family member who was battling an addiction? 
or maybe an addiction to drugs specifically, an illegal substance. How helpful is this point in that conversation? Hey, man, by the way, I just wanted to tell you those are illegal. <laughs> it's not very helpful. That's not how interventions work, right? Group of friends sitting in your living room with tears and Kleenexes and saying, we're just here to tell you that what you're doing is illegal. We'll see you. And they leave. That's not how interventions work, right? How do interventions work? How do they work? What actually happens when you are pleading with somebody? What, what, are, you, are you pleading on the basis of legality? No. What are you doing? What are you actually doing? Why are people crying on the couch as they're talking to you about your sin? They care. Say what? Expressing love. Yes. They're treating you like a person, not a convict or a defendant. The law will only treat you as a defendant. That's all it sees you as. But your friends will come to you as a person, person to person, face to face, and they will say, what you're doing is not only hurting you, it's hurting me. So sin, our sin, is not just illegal. It is deeply personal. Interventions are at the opposite end of the spectrum from a courtroom because they are personal. Here's a definition of sin from Cornelius Plantinga, who wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And I would encourage all of you to just read that book. It's a book only on sin, and so it seems like that could never be interesting. But I promise it's very devotional, and you'll be moved throughout the book to worship uh, not the way it's supposed to be. Here's a quote. Let us say that sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. God is not a machine. He's not a machine. He's a person up in heaven. And he feels the impact of your sin more deeply than you ever have. We have a saying, don't take it personally. Why do we say that? Well, part of why we say that is because we tend to feel things imperfectly. We're jaded. We're wounded. So sometimes when someone says the wrong thing or maybe just the right thing, we get hurt in a way that the speaker didn't intend. And the speaker might say, don't take it personally. But this is true at the other end of the spectrum, too. Sometimes we feel too much, but other times we don't feel enough. We're jaded and calloused. And so we come up with cute little poems like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, knowing that that's a lie, knowing that words hurt, but it's a way of deadening the pain, right? If I can just say that enough times, maybe what this person just said to me won't hurt. So we become calloused. We build up years Years of being sinned against build up calluses on our hearts so that even trying to say it that words will never hurt me becomes impossible. We know words hurt. God, on the other hand, is the only person in the universe who feels perfectly. Think about that. God feels perfectly. He's not jaded. He's not calloused. And when he's hurt, he feels it all the way down. We were created, Scripture says, in the image of God. 
I am an image bearer of God, and so are you. But here's the thing. God doesn't have a face or hands. Scripture says that. He's a spirit. So you might say that when you feel things, you're actually bearing the image of God more accurately and clearly than when you're out walking around. Does that make sense? God is a perfect feeler. Feeler. And so an offense against him is a personal offense. He's not overly sensitive. He is perfectly sensitive. And if a short lifetime of sins against you has left you calloused and jaded, what about thousands of years with no calluses, feeling all of those things? That's who God is. And as you read Ezekiel or any of the prophets, it's helpful to bear in mind that this exile that the people of God are experiencing is not sudden. They didn't just accidentally say the wrong thing and then God hauls off and smacks them. He's not short-tempered. Over and over and over again, he says, I'm not quick to anger like you are. I'm patient. I'm slow to anger. I'm quick to forgive, unlike you. But after centuries and centuries and centuries of personally offending him, finally, we face judgment. We're going to talk about judgment next week, but that's where we're at in Ezekiel. God is not flying off the handle. From Exodus to Ezekiel is a long period of us offending God. A thousand years of his covenanted people running into the arms of other lovers over and over and over again. And in Ezekiel, we have God saying, this is what it has felt like. These, these pictures that I give you, and he gives some graphic pictures. This is what it has felt like to be married to you for a thousand years. This is what it feels like. And it is graphic. Ezekiel might be the most personal book of all of scripture. At least from God's perspective. It's almost certainly the most graphic. In Ezekiel 16, one of several similar passages in Ezekiel, God shares his perfect, deep, appropriate feelings. And I'm just going to read it briefly. Ezekiel chapter 16, this is what it feels like to be married to you. When I passed by you, he's, he's drawing a picture, painting a picture of his people. They were orphans and their parents threw them out in the wilderness when they were born without even bothering to cut their umbilical cord threw them out in the wilderness and just left them out there to die. And as they grew out there, they got older, they matured, they became a marriable age. Verse 8, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned. You went from the wilderness to infinite wealth and royalty. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. 
You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty. You trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. Then later on, he goes on and on later on, he says, even the Philistines, the daughters of the Philistines were ashamed of your behavior. No one solicited you to play the whore and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. In other words, you were so desperate to get away from me, to get away from your husband, that you would actually go pay customers. You were not like other prostitutes. You would go pay customers. This is who you became. This is who you became. This is how personally God takes our sin. Why is it that he takes it so personally? Because all sin is idolatry. All sin. In fact, that's how the chapter... It, the verses that we read started out. God begins with, in all of this, he begins with idolatry. You have left me and you have put your hope in another. You have given your love to another. You are worshiping someone else. And all of these other sins are just the fruit of that. In fact, Keller says it this way, Tim Keller, the Ten Commandments, first two and most basic laws are against idolatry. Exodus doesn't envision any third option between true faith and idolatry. We will either worship the uncreated God or we will worship some created thing, an idol. There is no possibility of our worshiping nothing. There is no possibility of our worshiping nothing. And so all of our sin is idolatry. All of our sin is a willful choice to know better, to know what God has done for us, how God has delivered us, who he is, and to choose to worship something or someone else. That's what it is. And it is deeply, deeply personal. If God can feel pain perfectly, how deeply do you think he feels love? When he's sharing this story, how deeply did he love us? Have you thought about that? I mean, that's what scripture is, is testament to the love of God for us. Picture the love that a groom has for his bride on their wedding day. That that kind of love. He sees her coming down the aisle. The tears come. She's radiantly beautiful in his sight. And as she stands there before him, he pledges to love her for life. And she does the same. They exchange rings. There's a kiss. There's a celebration. There's food. There's dancing. There's drinks. They take a limo to the hotel. He carries her into the hotel room. And there, waiting on the bed, is some stranger. And she runs to the stranger and disrobes, kisses him, and looking over her shoulder to her groom, she says, don't take it personally, baby. That's the picture. That's the picture. That's the personal level at which God feels our sin. Ugly, shameful, heartbreaking our sin isn't merely a legal thing. Our sin is as personal as God himself. And when we see it for what it is, we should feel appropriately ashamed. We should blush, right? But what happens if we've forgotten how to blush? 
And after a thousand years of this, we had forgotten how to blush. Jeremiah says in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 15, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Even when we got caught, it's not personal. So, it's a breach of contract. It is personal. Sin is suicide. Blushing is almost literally a red flag. Blood rushes to the surface of your skin, your face turns red, and you've been caught. It's a red flag. I'm caught. I shouldn't be doing this. I should turn. When we ignore that red flag long enough, we become desensitized to our sin, and Scripture calls this searing our consciences with a hot iron. We sin with impunity, and our conscience fails to warn us, and we stop blushing. And as this happens, our sin always leads us to death. And it's a specific kind of death. Sin is suicide. It is a choosing of death over life. We can't say we weren't warned. We can't say we tripped into it. God has warned us about this from the very beginning. He told our first parents that if they chose to go their own way, they would die. They chose, they died. And he kept warning his people and they kept choosing and dying. All the way back in Deuteronomy, as God's bringing Israel into the covenant, he pleads with them, choose life and they chose death. The people said they would choose life and instead almost immediately started to choose death over and over and over again. And the penalty for sin is death. God has said it from the beginning. This will always lead to death because God is the source of life. It's logical. God, if God is the source of life and you choose anything other than life, what are you choosing? Death. Yes, death. Ezekiel chapter 18, God pleads multiple times. He says to his people, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. Just turn from your wickedness, turn to me, and you will live, and you will not die. That's chapter 18. That's after chapter 16. That's after God had just shared this story about how we've played the whore. In verse 18, or chapter 18, he says, if you'll just turn from it, I'll welcome you back with open arms and restore you to the royalty that you knew. If you'll just turn. And we say, no, thank you. No, we would want, we want anything else. Every act of sin that we choose is that choice. It is choosing death over life, no matter if it's just yelling at a coworker or a child, which I've never done or lying on your income taxes, or stealing, or adultery. It is all that choice. The choice is simple, life or death. All sin is to choose to die. Think about that. We're choosing it. We're choosing it. It is suicidal. Lastly, sin is a person and power as well. And I thought of this as we were hearing about Ukraine this morning from Val. And I am not here to say Russia is evil and Ukraine is not. There is no good legal nation. There is no good nation in the world. In fact, Scripture says that. That's not just me. Even America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, is corrupt. I hate to tell you. Every nation system is corrupt, everyone. And God is sitting over all of them and he will judge all of them. But what I will say is, you could see 
What's happening in Ukraine is a metaphor for what happens every day in your life. Every day, there is somebody who is after you, and they're bigger than you, and they're stronger than you. Scripture calls him a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. You know what lions devour? Things that are smaller than them. This is what he warned Cain and Abel, or Cain, about before Cain killed his brother. He said, wait, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, and it wants to destroy you. Don't give in. And the lion destroyed him. Our enemy is real. This is a spiritual reality. It is a force. It is not just an action that you do. It is a force that is encroaching on your soul and wants to bring you into subjection. Because from the very beginning, the serpent didn't tempt Eve to eat the fruit just to trick her, just to prank her. He was after a kingdom. And he is still after a kingdom. And sin is powerful. Just try telling yourself you're not going to eat today. And you will find out that sin is powerful. Just try telling yourself that you're going to love your neighbor perfectly this whole week. And you will find this afternoon that sin is powerful. You will find it. It is a power and it is a person. Our enemy, Satan, wants to devour us. So, that's it. I was really tempted to just leave it there, uh, partially, because that's kind of what Ezekiel does. Segments of Ezekiel were left written for several years, and then he would come back and write more. And so people would be left with this sense of despair. What am I going to do? Only they were so desensitized that they didn't even feel that. But I'm not going to leave you there. <laughs> we are all guilty. Can we agree to that? Can we agree to that? We're all sinners. Okay, we're all sinners. So nobody here, if you are picturing somebody else as you're hearing about all this sin, you have deceived yourself. Okay? Don't picture anybody else. This is you and me. We are sinners. But the good news is sin has been crucified. We are on this side of the cross from Ezekiel. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. We were dead in our sin, no hope, no light. And then Jesus came running. And on the cross, love, the perfect embodiment of love, crucified sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That means Ezekiel is not going to be read in court against you if you have trusted in Christ. If you are in Christ, you're not in court this way. This has been lifted from you. He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Isn't that great? There was a legal demand against us with demands. That, that happened. That, that was in place. There was a verdict on our heads. And he canceled it when he went to the cross. 
this, this legal demand that, that was made against us, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you think of the crucifixion and you only see Jesus dying on the cross, you're only getting half the picture. Yes, Jesus was crucified, but by being crucified, he himself crucified your sin. All of it. That's what he did. This means he didn't just pay for your offenses. Though he did, and they were many, he actually gave you a new reputation. To use God's own analogy, we are no longer the unfaithful wife. Now, Scripture says, we are dressed in righteousness. We are pure, spotless, and blameless. Our shame, the reputation we actually earned for the things we actually did, has been killed. And in its place, we are clothed in the radiant righteousness of Christ himself. So now, we can actually obey the command in chapter 18 of Ezekiel, where God says, turn from your sin and live. When we were dead, we had no power to respond to that invitation. Now we do. Through Christ, we are brought out of death and into life. And we're not subject to our own whimsical choices anymore. Christ has resuscitated us. He's brought us into life. And there he will keep us forever. Forever. So will you sin today? Yes, you will sin. You will sin. You will still give in to temptation. You will. We're not perfect yet. We're being made perfect, Scripture tells us. We're being matured in Christ. Every day, we're looking a little bit more and more like Jesus. So we're not perfect, but we're being perfected. What do we do then with our sin? Two things really quickly. First John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Those are courtroom words. Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we sin, 1 John chapter 2, we have an advocate. We couldn't afford one. One was provided for us. Jesus Christ himself, the righteous. Not the kind. Not the kind. It's not Jesus Christ, the kind. He's not being kind to you in forgiving your sins. God is being just in forgiving your sins because your sentence was fully paid. You were not let off the hook by a corrupt judge. Your sentence was paid by a perfect substitute. So now when you sin, all you have to do is go to God and confess it. Step into the light. He invites you. Step into the light. Confess it. And I am just. It would be unjust for me not to forgive you. I will forgive you. Always. And then secondly, we are a community of sinners. All of the you in Ezekiel is a corporate you. It's all of you. We are all guilty. So we are here working through our sin together. And James says, if you will confess your sins to each other, you will live. If you will bring a brother back from darkness, you will live and he will live. You'll restore his life. So there is a corporate nature to this struggle. You're not out there on your own. I'm supposed to be fighting alongside you and with you. So God has given us a savior to save us from our sin 
and he has given us a family to help us work through our sin. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the church. We sin together, but we love our church family together. Oh, that's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your long-suffering love. Thank you for not being quick to anger. Thank you for being quick to love us and to forgive us. Thank you for making a way for our sin to be removed from us. So now it is as far as the east is from the west. Thank you. Thank you. Father, help us to live in this light. Help us to stay here. Help us not to be afraid of shame and guilt because they have no hold over us anymore. Help us to run to the light and confess sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.